Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is brought to our church by our worship pastor, Brian Self. We hope that this message will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Uh, Last week, we went over uh, from Luke 1, what's commonly been termed uh, the Magnificat of Mary, and uh, that would be... I have to steal this because I got to unmute my mic on the thing. Uh, This song that we're going to be going over this evening uh, is one that has been called uh, in Latin from the first phrase of the song, uh, the Benedictus. And this is the song of Zechariah from the latter part of Luke 1. And... As we mentioned last week, some of these songs are not necessarily mentioned as someone having sung them uh, during this particular part of history. It wasn't that uh, Zacharias sings this section of scripture, but uh, as it is in a very poetic format uh, throughout the ages, Christians have sung songs to these words. And I mentioned last week we sing the song, He Who is Mighty, uh, taken from many of the words of Mary's song. Uh, But even a few phrases, uh, Oh, the mercy our God has shown to those that sit in death's shadow, uh, come right from the song we're going to look at this evening. And uh, the title of the message for this evening is Visited. And uh, we talked last week about being noticed and the difference it makes uh, when someone notices you. And we talked about maybe if a boss comes into the room and, uh, and they notice you, you might work a little harder or a little faster than you might otherwise. Uh, we talked about uh, if a person's working out at the gym and they see someone that they think is really pretty, they might uh, work, work out their muscles a little bit harder. Uh, we talked about uh, maybe pumping up those numbers of push-ups uh, to an unrealistic amount to make themselves look really strong. Uh, So we talked about what it's like to be noticed by God and how that was really the focus of Mary's praise, that God would notice someone as lowly and as humble of a condition as Mary was. And I think the same general thought could apply even to uh, this message, but in the specific aspect that we'll see today of the fact that God has visited us. Now, uh, there are different kinds of visits that one can make. And, uh, you know, if, if a friend drops by and they visit you, and uh, I think last night I visited Carlos. He, he texted me, he said, I'm working at Taco Bell, and uh, you should drop by. I'm working in the lobby, and uh, you can fill out a survey and make me look good to my manager. And, uh, and so I came by and I visited and I did that. And it was just a, a little thing. It was just a friendly visit. But even as we read the word visited or visits uh, in this chapter and in these verses that we're going to cover this evening, that's not really the kind of visit that God has made to us. No, this word visited in the passage is a kind of visit that is a visit of concern, a visit of 
assistance. I've heard Pastor talk several times about uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit and he was able to go with some others and help out during that time and help those who had uh, maybe lost a lot and those that needed to kind of work through the wreckage of that time. And uh, that was a visit of this kind. It was a visit of concern, a visit of assistance. But just as last week, uh, going to back up and give just a little bit of background to what's happening. Uh, We jumped kind of in the middle of this story last week, where uh, the story in Luke starts off with Zacharias, and then it pivots over to Mary, the announcement being made to Mary that Jesus would be born. She goes to Elizabeth, her relative, who is Zacharias' wife, And she gives that great uh, psalm or song that we read about last week. And then there's the passage that we're going to be reading tonight. So we we jumped right in the middle of the story last time. But the story of Zechariah is this, that he was a priest who worked in the temple during this first century. And him and his wife were without children. They had tried for many years and had no kids. And during this time especially, it was a thing that brought a lot of shame. A lot of people assumed if you can't have kids, uh, then you don't have God's favor. You don't have God's blessing. You must have done some great egregious sin that has shut you off from the blessings of God. However, this truth didn't come from the Bible. As we'll see, God cared very much for, had a lot of favor and grace and blessings that he was going to give, but the time had never been right up to this point. And while we jump into the story at this ending part, really, where God himself stepped in in a huge and a miraculous and really in a mostly unprecedented way into the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth, there were countless decades of heartbreak, of hurt that we're jumping into. So it can be easy to jump into this story and see, oh, uh, Elizabeth was barren. They were both now well-stricken in years. Uh, And then we can read about the miraculous events that take place. We need to remember as we're going into this, these were people that had hurt day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year for decades. But as Zacharias was uh, doing his priestly duties, his lot, uh, according to Luke 1.9, his job at that particular point was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Uh, the one common thing you'll see in scripture as people notice angels, as they see them there, is they are afraid. They're freaked out. They are scared. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. 
and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him, God, in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel here gives this big announcement. You're going to have a son. You're finally going to have this joy and gladness that you have been waiting for for so long. But not only you will be gladdened by the birth of John, he will bring a national revival of the people of Israel. He will turn many people to the Lord their God and he will make a people prepared for the Lord, for the coming Christ. This is an amazing announcement, but after all of these decades of praying and asking God for a child and having nothing, Zacharias has a reaction that many of us might have had. And Zacharias said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? How do I know that this is true? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answered and said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God. And I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about Carlos right now. Not that kind of dumb. Thou shalt be mute, unable to speak. I'm sorry, Carlos, I didn't mean it. Behold, thou shalt be mute and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. So the angel tells him, because of your unbelief, you won't be able to speak until the child is born. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. They're like, what happened to him? Uh, they were actually supposed to, the priests, have a rope tied around their ankle whenever they went into the temple to do their duties uh, in case they did something that was wrong, that offended God, and they died. So then people would be able to take their body out of the temple. So there might have been some concern for the people at this point because Zacharias had been in there for so long. All he was supposed to do was light the candle and go on out. But he'd been in there all this time. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration or his days of service in the temple were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me, to take away my reproach among men. And here you have Elizabeth saying the same general thing that Mary did of God has noticed me. He's noticed all the days that I had been a reproach, that people had looked down on me because of my situation. God noticed and God has made it right. Then the section comes where uh, the story of Mary is told and how Mary then goes to Elizabeth and, and tells her, and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy when Jesus walks into the room. And aren't you glad that we can have joy when Jesus comes into our life? Then, down in verse number 57, is where we jump into now nine months after that first portion. Nine months later, here's what happens. 
Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins, her family members, heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her. And it, came to pay, and it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. They say, oh man, Zacharias is a great name. It's a family name. It's his dad's name. Uh, I can't really say anything. I'm Brian Self Jr., son of Brian Self Sr. My son is Brian Self III. So I get where they're coming from. If the dad can't talk, uh, you know, that might be uh, how that happens. Uh, I think, you know, your husband, Dennis, and son, Dennis, and grandson, Dennis, and we have Carlos III over here. It's a, it's a pretty common thing. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't them being presumptuous in this passage, but they said, okay, we'll name him Zachariah. And his mother answered and said, not so, but he shall be called John. Just like the angel had told Zacharias, he will be called John. And they said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. Now, this is just me conjecturing. I don't know of anyone that cares more about the baby's name or more about the baby in general than the mom normally does. They have a great concern. Um, I'm pretty sure that Elizabeth had already thought through every possible name over the decades of being childless, that by the time that she says he shall be called John, maybe the people should have listened to her and said, huh, maybe she would have known in however long this time period would have been, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, that she would know enough of the names of her relatives that she would know who was and wasn't named John. And they ignore her, and it says in verse number 62, they, they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying, his name is John. And they marveled all. They, they marveled, they were amazed that the woman was right. <laughs> it's not really all that amazing to us. We, I've noticed most of the time my wife is right. <laughs> Almost always. And his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God and fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So after Zacharias lets the people know his name is John, God immediately opens his mouth and prays to God, floods out. Man, I can only think after being mute for nine months, I wonder what I would say, what I would want to say. But it says that Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and he praised God. And we're going to look at this specific section in verses 67 through 79 this evening on the Benedictus, the blessing of the Lord from this passage. And uh, I think it'll be a great encouragement to you. And I know I've been helped by it so far. Let's pray. And then we'll dive right into the passage for this evening. Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much for uh, Lord visiting us. Lord, in our helplessness, in our open rebellion against you, you came and loved us 
and he loved us all the way to the cross. And God, we ask that, uh, Lord, we would be surrendered to you and realize that you are the Lord and we ought to uh, submit to you and love you as a result. We love you, God, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. So the first thing I notice in this passage is in uh, verses 68 to 71 that Zacharias tells them God visited to save us. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. He starts off saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's both uh, realizing what has happened in that there is a personal blessing from God that the angel Gabriel had promised this was going to be something that would benefit all Israel and that he would turn many of the hearts of the people to God, but it's also in view of what was going to happen with the future redemption of Israel. And we'll see that in just a couple of verses. In verse 69, he says, He's raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, a horn of salvation, we might not understand quite what that means. But it's a phrase that you would use that horns on certain animals were where uh, were where their strength lie. So deer, if they have big antlers, they would be able to be more successful in their fights, uh, in establishing dominance. Uh, you can think of a rhino would be the biggest example of an animal with a very large horn that had great strength. And so he's saying a mighty savior Mighty salvation for us, God has raised up in the house of his servant David. Now, there's something to note here is that Zacharias is not here talking about John the Baptist. How would we know that? Because Zacharias was a priest, he would have been from the tribe of Levi, whereas the house of David was from the descendants of Judah. And so here you have him referencing, I'm sure, Elizabeth told Zacharias all about Mary and Jesus and the prophecies that had been given uh, when Mary had come and visited Elizabeth. Uh, Zacharias wasn't able to say anything, so that would have meant Elizabeth was the only one talking in the house uh, during that time. And I can imagine from the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth month of pregnancy uh, for Elizabeth ever since Mary had come, that she couldn't stop talking about how excited she was that the Messiah was coming. And it was coming through their family member, Mary. So he says, God has raised up a mighty savior, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, he says, hey, God has kept his promise. He has visited us. And he's visited us to save us. And we can see this in verse 71. Uh, he's quoting here Psalm 106.10. And he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. 
And man, when I think about God coming to save us and, and from this verse that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all that hate us, what enemies did God save us from? And many of us could think of some specific examples or sins or situations that God has saved us from. But in a general sense, God has saved us from sin's penalty. That we deserved death because of our sin. And sometimes we can gloss over that as Christians, especially if we've been saved for a while. We tend to only view maybe our righteousness, our good actions. We can think of times that we've given, that we've helped, that we've shared the gospel, that we have done all of these things. And we forget the fact that all of our righteousnesses, the Bible says, are as filthy rags before God. That our best is nowhere near the perfect holiness of our God. That we all truly, completely deserved sin's penalty of separation from God, both in this life and in the next. But God visited us. He came, he gave assistance to us, and he has saved us from sin's penalty. That we never have to go through a day without knowing that God is with us. That's incredible. Sin's penalty, he said, you are forever set apart, rid of, unable to get to God. And yet, because God has visited us, we will never be separated from the presence of God. I think of uh, the passage in Romans 8 where it says, I'm going to turn there now because I want to list the, the full list. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has completely thwarted, subverted, conquered sin and its effect on our lives. God has saved us from sin's penalty. And God has saved us from Satan's power. We, we just sang the song uh, that we were under Satan's power and that God has saved us. And man, that is a comfort. Many of us know around the world that Satan is working in lives and in people, and we would read even in scripture in uh, different governments, and, and he has his plan for the world. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. You read the book of Revelation, and you can see what will happen one day as God allows him uh, to work in a huge way, and yet God has saved us from his power. The promise of 1 John 4 is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Think about that, that the one who rebelled against God, that convinced a third of the angels to join his side in the rebellion and the fight against God, that powerful being has been conquered by our God. We've seen the devastation that happens with demon-controlled people, both in the pages of Scripture and as you read missionary biographies from around the world, people tell tales of the horrible wreckage that comes from demonic oppression and possession. But God has saved us from Satan's power. But this begs the question for me, am I living then in Christ's victory? 
Am I living like I am a conqueror through him that loved us? Sometimes we can be so downtrodden, uh, whether it's by sin in our life, by the circumstances around us, by viewing the world and seeing all that Satan is attempting to do and to wreak havoc in our, in our world and in cultures. We can be so focused on that and saddened by that that we don't realize that we are more than conquerors, that God has already obtained the victory and we walk around not fighting a fight for our souls. If it was a fight for our soul, we would definitely lose on our own. Instead, we are fighting a fight that the captain of our faith, the author and finisher has already won and we are merely walking behind him, proclaiming to the world around us the victory that he's already won. When it comes to sin that's in our life, we don't have to feel like there is no overcoming sin. Christ has already overcome the world. He's overcome Satan. He has overcome sin. And it's by following him and relying on Jesus that we find victory over sin. When circumstances come around and we can see Satan at work doing his job of dividing and of hurting and of bringing ruin to people's lives, we can realize that the cure is not in our own strength in overcoming, but it's in relying on Jesus' victory. Not only did God visit us to save us, but God visited to give us purpose. It says here, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, so that first purpose, that he'd come to save us from the hand of our enemies, he'd grant to us that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. He starts off this next section saying, okay, God has done all of these things. He has defeated our enemies. He has made all of this happen to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. God promised mercy to people that he knew would rebel against him. I want you to think about that. Many times we will forgive someone. We will show mercy to them after they have sinned. After they have done wrong, we'll extend forgiveness to them. Maybe they ask for it. Maybe if you, uh, you know, are, are walking with the Lord, you might even give forgiveness to someone, even if they haven't asked for forgiveness yet. But the all-knowing God offered mercy to people that he knew would rebel against him in the future. That's an incredible thought. We're going to dive more into it in a second. It says, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. He, he made a promise to Abraham, a covenant that extended to his people. And that purpose or that covenant or that oath was given for a specific reason. You see, God visited to give us purpose. And I see here four specific purposes that God has given us. 
And the first of these is that we would serve the Lord. In verse 74, he says that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him. Serving the Lord. God did not put you on earth simply to make money, have a family, retire one day, and then do nothing until you pass. Instead, God has given each of us this purpose of serving him. And the incredible thing is serving the Lord doesn't often look like one particular thing. It can take one of a thousand different facets. You can serve the Lord in, uh, in your family as a parent and showing others your walk with the Lord, showing them what the Lord has done for you. You can serve the Lord as a kid, obeying your parents and showing the same kind of submission and obedience that Jesus did as talked about in Philippians 2. You can serve the Lord as an employer, treating your employees and your customers in the way that Christ has treated you with love, with dignity, and with honesty. You can serve the Lord as an employee. Uh, Many times, both in Ephesians and Colossians and in other passages, we read uh, the admonition that we would serve our employers or our masters as we would serve the Lord. There are so many different ways to serve the Lord. And uh, we heard just a couple of weeks ago, as well as this past Sunday, about serving the Lord with the gifts that he has given us in the church, that God has given to every person at least one spiritual gift that they would be able to use in the church to further his kingdom, to encourage others, and to show other people the light of the gospel. So God has given us the purpose of serving the Lord, but he's also given us the purpose of serving without fear. And we can see this at the end of verse 74. We being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Now, that might seem like just a small clause in the, in the big sentence, in the big scheme of things, but I think this is an important thought. In maybe other realms of religion, you would serve with fear. You would serve in a fear that if you don't do the right thing, you might get shot by lightning. You might serve with fear going, I hope my good outweighs my bad. You might serve with fear going, man, I hope this uh, doesn't run too contrary to popular opinion. But when we serve the Lord... We have a purpose of serving him without fear. That we don't fear a heavy-handed taskmaster. We don't fear a slave owner. No, we serve our heavenly father. And because we serve the perfect one who loves us more completely and wholly than anyone has ever loved us, We can serve him without fear. We don't have to fear his judgment knowing that all condemnation has been taken away because it was put on Christ. We serve not fearing, God, is this offering to you good enough? Instead, we know that even a sacrifice of praise, as we read about in Hebrews 13, is acceptable and pleasing to our God. 
No, we don't have to fear anymore because we have a heavenly father. Now, this kind of without fear is in contrast to last week where I said one of the things that we should do is fear the Lord, realizing who he is, his holiness, and realizing where we would have been were it not for Jesus' sacrifice. But to serve without fear is to realize that Jesus did make the sacrifice, that we are no longer operating under fear of condemnation. Instead, we operate in freedom. And you can read so much about that in the book of Galatians. Next, I see that another purpose God has given us is not only should we serve the Lord, serve without fear, but we should serve with holiness. And I can see this at the beginning of verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him. And holiness would be that rightness, that those good things, the totality of God's law. And uh, really, I think the focus here is for our personal lives that we would serve the Lord with holiness, that we would seek personally the things that I think the things that I say with my words, the things that I do are going to be right before God. And we're only able to do this because God has visited us to save us because of the salvation he's provided. Now that we have Christ's righteousness put onto our account, now we can serve with holiness because God has made it so that we are no longer slaves to sin. Now we are children of God. And just as before, we did the works of our father, Satan, and the wrong things that we did. Now, we are able to serve with holiness just as our father is holy. But then at the end of verse 75, I see serving with righteousness. And there in 75, again, in holiness and righteousness before him. Sorry, I skipped a couple. Serving with righteousness. And this word righteousness, another word you might use for it would be justice. And this would be not only uh, with holiness, am I going to do what's right personally? Righteousness, I'm going to do what's right with others. Holiness might be okay for myself, for my own thoughts, for my own words. Righteousness would be seeking to do justice, to do right to those that are around me. So with these purposes, have we been living our God-given purpose? It can be very easy and very tempting to just kind of coast through life and to wrap ourselves up in the American dream of get more, earn more, be more. But how many of us choose to make these things the purpose of our life? That, hey, I'm going to serve the Lord no matter where I am, no matter what relationship it is, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve him without fear. I'm going to realize what Christ paid, that it was sufficient, that it was complete, that there is no condemnation left. And so I can serve in love of my heavenly father. I'm going to serve with holiness, with personal integrity and rightness before God. And serving with righteousness of In my relationships with other people, I am going to do right by them. I am going to love them. I am going to serve with righteousness. Have we been living our God-given purpose? 
the fun thing about a God-given purpose is that at no point have you ever truly failed your purpose. If your purpose was, hey, you need to become president of the United States, uh, there would come a time, uh, and really all throughout your life, if you were never president, you would be a failure at your purpose that entire time. If your purpose is, hey, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to have happiness that way, man, for so many people, no matter how hard they've worked, they've never been able to accomplish that purpose. But for the child of God, when our purpose is serving the Lord, serving those around us, serving without fear, at any moment we can be living out our purpose, that there can be this motivation for life knowing that, I am never done until I'm gone. And when I'm gone, I'm with the Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians 1, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, hey, if I'm here, I have purpose. My purpose is Jesus. I'm going to tell other people about Jesus. I'm going to walk in communion with Christ. I'm going to worship and serve with these bodies of believers all across the world. He says, hey, my purpose is Christ if I'm alive. And when I go, I finally get to be with the Lord and my faith is made sight. Have you been living your God-given purpose? And then I see here, God visited us to give us light. Verse 76, it says, and thou child shalt be called the prophet of the highest. So he's transitioned now from kind of the general thoughts to now he's specifically talking to little baby John the Baptist. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God visited to give us light. So Zacharias has gone from this first part of, okay, God has visited us to save us, to save us from our enemies, the enemy of our sin, the enemy, the devil, who would seek to ruin us. And now God has given us purpose that we would serve him genuinely, but he's also visited to give us light. And I see this first fact that God has enlightened us. He has given us light by showing us that we can be saved. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Aren't you glad that you can know that you are saved? Of that promise in 1 John 5, 13, he says, these things have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. If all I had was a guess that I was saved or a hope in the sense of eh, that I was saved, man, that would bring fear, that would bring stress, that would bring this constant worry in my life. But because we can know that we have salvation, Man, that brings peace. That brings settling to our souls. He says to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. God has enlightened us by showing us 
that we can be saved. But number two, God has enlightened us by showing us who he is. Verse 78 says, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. And I see here in this verse a couple of words in particular that I want to bring out. It says, through the tender mercy of our God. Uh, the word in the Old Testament would be the Hebrew word chesed, and it would be a steadfast love. It's a, a love that doesn't stop even when our actions don't deserve it or don't warn it. It's the love that does not end. That God is merciful, but he's tenderly merciful, just as a father would be to a young child. It says, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. This would be kind of a fancy way of saying the sun or the morning star. And this would be that Jesus is viewed here as the sun that gives light, that gives life, that helps everything in life. And he says, hey, God is both tenderly merciful to us. He is the very source of light itself. And from on high, he has visited us. He has come to give us his aid. He has come to give us his assistance. And man, I think of uh, even the description that Jesus gives of himself, that he is meek or gentle and lowly in heart. And man, when you study the heart of God throughout scripture, you can see that he is righteous and he does respond to wrongdoing and to sin and to injustice. And as he is holy and righteous, he must deal with those things. But that which flows most easy from our Father's heart, the thing that comes from him most naturally is love and forgiveness and mercy. Aren't you glad that's the natural disposition of our God? Man, he, he is just. He will deal with sin. But that which comes from his heart is that I am meek and lowly. I am gentle. I'm humble in my dealings with people. Do you know that God doesn't have a thing in the world to be humble about? <laughs> that he is the almighty. There is no one above him. There was no one that compares to him. And yet he says, I'm gentle and lowly. I will meet you in your lowliness, in your lowest state, just as he did with Mary. And he has come to us and he says, hey, I will offer you my love, my tender mercy. I will give you life. I will give it to you abundantly. God has enlightened us by showing us who he is that he isn't like the gods of the world. He isn't like an Allah that is impersonal and wants nothing to do with his people other than to be worshiped. No, our God is one that took on flesh. He came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory that was clothed in our flesh. But that glory was of the only begotten of the Father the one and only from the Father. He was full of grace and truth. God will always be truthful, but very often, especially as we read in God's word, 
we will notice that God is a gracious God to us. So God's enlightened us by showing us that we can be saved because we deserved God's wrath and punishment. But in showing us that we can be saved, he has shown us who he is. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is full of compassion towards us. But then I see that God has enlightened us by showing us his way of life. And here he quotes Isaiah 9 in verse 2. He says, To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. His way is the way of peace. Uh, Pastor quotes the verses often that he says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, I think of many of the verses in Proverbs. uh, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. God does not want you to stumble through your life and wonder, what am I supposed to do next? God wants you to realize that he will direct and guide you throughout your life. That's his goal, that he would have a way of life. I think of the verse that says, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's a difficult life to go through life completely uh, directionless, that you don't know which way to go. But God has given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He's given us brothers and sisters in the Lord who are equipped with spiritual gifts to be able to help us on our journey through this life. God has given us his way, the way of peace. Man, sin left us in darkness. Sin left us in the shadow of death. But God enlightened us and showed us his way. So, are we living our lives like we can see the path? Sometimes, even though we're Christians, we name the name of God, we can live our life in such a way that no one would be able to tell that we're on a different path. No one would be able to tell that we know what way we're going. We know our destination of where we're ending up. Are we living our life like God has enlightened the path? Are we living like we know that we're saved? Are we living like we know who our God is? Are we living like he has lit the path? In this passage, I I see these encouragements that God has visited us to save us. That God has visited us to give us purpose. And God has visited us to give us light. That makes me want to ask these questions. Am I living in the salvation that God has given? Uh, Tonight, many of us are our church family and we would know Jesus as our Savior. But are we living like we've been saved? Or are we living a defeated, victoryless life? Are we living in the victory that Christ has given? Are we living in the purpose that God has given us? 
It can be very easy to get off track and start living for different purposes other than serving the Lord, serving Him without fear, serving in holiness and serving in righteousness or, or justice or integrity towards those that are around us. And are we living in the light that God has given, in the light of His love and His disposition towards us, that of a father to a dearly beloved child? Are we living like God is lighting our path or are we seeking every other path or every other way rather than the path that God has given to us? God has visited us. He's, he's given us his aid. It makes me think of, uh, honestly, Veronica, it's a, it's a pretty dumb joke. It's not a joke, but it's a dumb story. But I'm going to tell it anyway because it fits. It fits really well. The story is told that there was a giant flood and uh, the rains were coming, and it was not a good situation. And, and uh, some people came by this one particular house, and they noticed uh, a family that was there. There was a, a dad and a mom and I think a couple of kids. And, and this vehicle drove by, and they said, hey, the weather's getting really bad. This, this storm's really going to kick up. And and uh, man, it's, there's going to be some really bad flooding. Why don't you guys get into the car and, uh, and we'll drive you guys to safety? And they're like, no thanks, uh, God's going to take care of us. And, and so the vehicle drove off. And, and sure enough, the weather continued to go and the rains came down and, and, uh, and there started to be some much worse flooding. And so the family went to uh, the second floor of their house and even went on to the, the balcony and, uh, and a boat came by and they said, hey, uh, we realize that uh, your house is flooded and you need to get out of here. Why don't you get in the boat and, uh, and we'll take you to safety. And they went, oh no, uh, God will take care of us. And so the boat went away and then uh, sure enough, the weather continued to be worse and worse and worse until finally the family was on the very top of the roof and, and, uh, and the water was all the way up there and, and they didn't really have anywhere they could go and a, and a helicopter came down and they said, hey, you know, grab this rope or whatever it was and, and come on up and, and, and we'll, we'll take you to safety. And people said, no thanks, God will take care of us. And, uh, and they died and they went to heaven and, and they went, Lord, why didn't you save us? And he said, I sent a car, a boat, and a helicopter. And man, so many times in our life, we can go through our life ignoring everything that God has for us to help us and, and all of these different ways that he has visited us and we can shun all of it. And then sometimes go, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? But I hope that viewing this message and this passage of scripture that we would realize that God has visited us. He has saved us. He has given us victory. He's given us purpose and he has given us light. Are we going to live like we've been visited? Are we going to take advantage of the car or the boat or the helicopter and realize God has visited us to give us assistance, to give us his help? And are we going to accept that? Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.